glad that you can join us uh, this week for our public meetings. Uh, there will be no public meeting tomorrow because it's a public holiday. So uh, welcome if you're a Thursday person and you've decided to come and hear the third of the talks that we've been doing because you'd normally be hearing it on Thursday. Um, uh, because if you've got a copy of the uh, text of Matthew chapter 15 open in front of you, uh, we're going to spend some time once again trying to work through uh, the whole of that chapter today. And uh, one of the things that we're doing, if you've just joined us for the first week of public meeting, then a very warm welcome. Uh, we've been working over the last three weeks through Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 13, and today we get to Matthew chapter 15, and we're going to spend some time thinking about whether or not Jesus is worth trusting. So will you pray with me? And we'll ask that God might help us do that as we turn to his word. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for the opportunity you give us to be able to be here on campus today. We thank you for the privilege and opportunity of being able to meet here in this lecture theatre, and we're thankful that you provide that opportunity for us. We do give you thanks for speaking to us in your word, and we pray now that you'll help us to be attentive to what it says, uh, willing to listen to it, seeking to put it into practice, and trusting in Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Um, uh, I, I, I was surprised this morning as I walked onto camp. It's student elections, right? And uh, as you would well know, uh, there's a number of political student political parties that are active in force, inviting people to come and vote. Uh, normally, I just sort of walk straight through the middle of them and they say nothing to me. Uh, one brave young guy, late teens, sort of sidled up to me. He said, can I just ask you a question? And I went, I don't know where this is going. He said, are you by any chance an undergraduate student? <laughs> Which I was pleasantly surprised. I had to say to him, very brave, thank you for being very generous, but no, I am not. Right? One of the things I've learnt in trying to be a campus worker, uh, despite my number, my advancing years, is that there's a sense in which student ministry is a bit of a young person's game. Right? And the way in which I want to demonstrate this is using Instagram. Right? I sort of adapted to Instagram, I guess, uh, you know, about 18 months ago, partly because I wanted to try and keep up with my children. Uh, who are the Instagram generation, much of your generation, right? And I've realised that on one hand, Instagram is a complete waste of time, right? Just to put it out there, and there's really no reason why I need it on my phone. However, the EU seeks to do a great job of being on Instagram, and because I'm part of the EU creative team, shout out to the EU creative team who do all the stuff on social media and the website and you and I adapted to Instagram. Here's one of the uh, lessons I've learned from Instagram. Watching reels is basically a complete waste of time, right? In, in case you didn't know. Uh, because I think probably about one in 10,000 times I see a reel that I recognise, because the EU puts up something like EUTV. And then I go, I get to hit the heart button, because I like that, right? But for most of the time, I think reels are pretty much a waste of time, except when it comes to this particular illustration. <laughs> That's why I'm using Instagram, right? One of the things I've learned about Instagram is there's lots of really interesting and strange stuff on it. There's some stuff on there which helps you understand how people think, what they think is funny, what they think is not. One of the things that most people think is funny is watching people hurt themselves. Now, I'm a parent, right? It's generally not a funny thing when my children hurt myself, and I'm generally not laughing when people hurt themselves. But there's a particular thing uh, that I find on Instagram that people find funny. Uh, it's all about trust. See, back in the day... Oh, we're recording this one, so I've got to be a little bit more mindful about what we say. Uh, I led youth group for nine years, right? And I led year eight and nine boys. This is back in the day, right? There are a large number of youth group games that would never darken the door of any youth group leaders meeting these days as a suggestion for what you might play at youth group. And one of them often involved trust. Uh, the simple one was you just got someone to stand in front of a group of people and you said to them, if you trust us, then just sort of fall back and we'll catch you, right? You, you, you're looking there blankly going, oh, that sounds like a bit dangerous. The risk assessment lights are going on like this. That's why it's generally not played in youth groups. 
This is a very common game of ours that we used to play to try and demonstrate trust. Would you stand there, close your eyes and fall backwards and trust that your fellow youth group boys would catch you, right? We always needed a leader standing directly behind the child who was doing this because sometimes the youth group boys weren't as keen on catching, right? One of the things I've noticed about Instagram, though, is people put this on their reels. And so there was a reel of one person standing on a wall and all of their friends were behind them saying, come on, fall back, fall back, we'll catch you, right? They weren't standing just on the floor like this. This was like a sort of a brick fence that was like about four or five feet tall, right? So the person jumps up and says, okay, I guess you'll catch me, closes his eyes and what happens? He chooses to fall forward instead of backwards and lands on the concrete and then the reel stopped. I have no idea if the guy got up. I don't know if he smashed. Like, it was just this. So clearly his friends thought that they were going to be able to catch him. But clearly, he not only misunderstood the aim of the activity, he had lots of trust that he thought his friends were going to catch him. Now, I tried not to watch the reel over and over again because the algorithm, the more times you like it, the more popular it becomes. I thought, this is not really a good reel to be watching, right? I get the sense the guy intended to fall backwards but just lost his balance because he closed his eyes. Suffice to say, the question here is, who will you trust? Who will you might like to share? Who will you trust and why? Go for it, I'll give you 30 seconds. Anyone like to share who you will trust and why? Stick up a hand, anyone? You're all having great conversations about something, right? Was it about Instagram? No. Who would you trust and why? A hand, anyway? Yep, in the middle. Okay, Paddington Bear because he's sweet, right? Yep. Hard to go past this in the current climate, right? Yep. Who else would you trust and why? Yeah, hand, yep. Okay, right, yep, a friend of a friend based on the word of your friend, the testimony of your friend. Yep, any others? One more, yep. Yeah, your family, because they're one of the best for you, right? It's, it's not uncommon for us to be in sort of trusted and trusting relationships with lots of people. And one of the things I want to consider now as we turn to Matthew chapter 15 is just think about, is Jesus worth trusting? And you may be someone here who's sort of uh, thought this was a psychology lecture, and you're stuck in the middle now and it's too embarrassed to get up, it's okay, you can stay here and listen to the talk for the next 30 minutes. And this may be the first time you've really ever considered whether or not Jesus is worth trusting. You may be someone who, for all of your life, as long as you can remember, has always trusted in Jesus. In which case, Jesus has a word for us as well. Is this claim that Jesus makes that he is worth trusting actually valid? And what do we make of it? Well, open uh, here with Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 9. Uh, this is what Jesus says at this particular part of his ministry. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honour your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honour his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines 
the commandments of men. Well, we do well here with Jesus as he engages with the religious leaders of the day. As you read through the narrative of Matthew's gospel and any of the other gospels, you start to appreciate that Jesus engages with all sorts of different people. In this case, it's the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, one of the things that I discovered fairly early on as a Christian, well, as a young Christian, I was going to Sunday school, uh, the Sunday school teachers would often get us to act out parts of the Bible. Really good, actually, for people. Uh, helps them learn the passages, helps them learn the text of Scripture, and it's a good engaging activity to do, and it takes up most of the lesson time as well. Whenever it came to acting out stories of Jesus, sort of not surprisingly, everyone wanted to be one of his disciples. Occasionally, we always had one person in our Sunday school class, they always wanted to play Jesus because they really liked being the centre of attention. Not surprisingly, right? The rest of us, we really didn't want to be the Pharisees because deep down we knew they were the bad guys. We didn't want to be the bad guys, we wanted to be the good guys, right? I was like nine or ten, like I was nine years old or ten years old or something like that, right? Of course I wanted to be a disciple. I didn't want to be one of those Pharisees. They're the bad guys. But we do need to just remind ourselves that at the time, the Pharisees weren't considered the bad guys. The Pharisees were actually considered the good guys. See, the Pharisees were moral, upright, religious, law-keeping. That's how they were perceived as society. They weren't the thieves. They weren't the robbers. They weren't the... So we need to be a little bit careful. We don't too quickly impose a judgment on the Pharisees lest we misunderstand the engagement that Jesus has with them. See, for the people of the day, they would have looked up to the Pharisees as religious people, as upright people, as people who were respectable. So if that's the case, why then does Jesus give them a hard time? So you notice what Jesus, notice the engagement that happens. The Pharisees come and accuse not Jesus directly here, but accuse his followers, Jesus' followers, or Jesus' disciples, of essentially being hypocrites. See, what they're doing is they're saying, Jesus, your disciples aren't following, they're not following the traditions of being Jewish. It's really at some point a question as to whether or not Jesus and his disciples are actually Jewish. You don't follow the traditions of being Jewish. And I think for some senses this would be a fairly fair question, particularly if the crowd were watching on. See, how does Jesus then respond? Well, he doesn't answer them by responding to their accusation. Rather, he sort of ups the stakes in the conversation. He goes right to the heart of the issue and then says there in verse 3, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? See, Jesus exposes the fact that they seek people to follow a tradition rather than the command of God and does so there in verses 4 to 6. So in this particular case, the Pharisees were seeking to minimise their obligations under the law. And you'll see there the example that is given. Jesus says there is the command that says, honour your mother and father. If you revile your mother and father, you must surely die. But what were the Pharisees and the scribes doing? The Pharisees and the scribes were seeking to withhold things from honouring their parents by saying, well, I've already given everything I have to God. I have nothing left to give to you, mother or father. Jesus here exposes their hypocrisy. Stanley Hervas points this out really nicely in a quote. Uh, he sort of says it almost better than... Oh, this is the outline of Matthew 15, by the way. We hear commands of God. We'll come back to that in a minute. 
Herbus points this out in a quote. He says, The commandments are clear. Honour your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father and mother must die. But Jesus observes that the Pharisees and scribes have learned how to avoid honouring their mothers and fathers. Instead of supporting their parents, some try to avoid supporting needy parents by claiming they have given everything to God. However, they continue to use all that they have allegedly given to God for their own benefit. Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees is clear. He reminds them of the commandment of God, not a tradition of God, but a commandment of God that they have not been keeping. What we see here is that the Pharisees have set themselves up as ones who sought to keep the law, so they thought. And they would have considered themselves righteous, not just before the people, but particularly before God. But the way in which they'd done that is they'd built in all sorts of other traditions, some of which might have been based in or related to the Old Testament law. But this is now the tradition that they now expect others to keep. You might say the Pharisees have established their own standard that they now sought to live to and then expected others to live up to as well. But it was not God's command, it was their own standard. And in doing so, you'll see here how they're hypocrites. Now, we would never be like that, would we, friends? See, lest we call out the Pharisees for being hypocrites, we ourselves need to be careful we're not doing exactly the same thing. Lest we be too quick to judge them, we need to keep examining whether or not we create our own standards that we seek to justify our actions by and therefore see ourselves right before God and sometimes bring others to that standard rather than sitting under the command and the law of God. See, the Pharisees here are essentially just trusting in their own righteousness, not in the righteousness that they might receive from God. Perhaps this was because the Pharisees knew of their own inadequacies, their own desires, their own fears. And instead of coming before God in recognition of their weakness and their failings and asking for help, they created their own expectations, their own standard, and trusted in that. Perhaps we do the same thing. When we look inward, in light of God's standard of perfection, and we all deep down know we cannot meet that, sometimes do we not create our own standard and say, well, as long as I can achieve that, that will be good enough for me and hopefully good enough for God? So part of the tension that arises here is what law or standard ought to be obeyed? Is it God's perfect commandment? Or is it the standard that individuals establish? Because in many respects, we're just like the Pharisees, aren't we? So this is why this word is particularly pertinent to us today. Uh, back in the 1970s, which is the music that was being played for us earlier, Creedence Clearwater, 1972, the band stopped, right? Uh, none of you were alive. Well, I was, but none of you were. Right? I'm just sort of vaguely scanning the room. No, I think I was alive. In, I was alive in the 70s, but I don't think any of you were. Uh, the Americans decided to launch a mission to the moon. This was the Apollo 13 mission. And if you've seen the movie with Tom Hanks, you'll know what I'm talking about now. Uh, just sometime after takeoff, they realised there's a particular problem. 
And so what they do is they decide to abort the landing on the moon. Now these are four astronauts who have spent months or years training to land on the moon. This is their very reason for existing. So Houston, NASA tells them, we're just going to skip the moon, right? And this is because the astronauts had sort of called down to Houston to say, Houston, we have a problem. So what they did is they circled the, um, uh, the spacecraft around the back of the moon and headed it back towards Earth. At some point, this is what they would have seen. Just how do you think they're feeling? They're, they're sitting in a, basically a tin can, which has less computing power than the phone that sits in your pocket, right? And this is home, and this is how far away it is. And they can't just stop the spacecraft and get out and fix it and have a bit of a go at it. There's no sort of petrol station you can pull in for and do running repairs. You're in the middle of space. And what are they trying to do? Well, back on the ground, NASA and Houston are trying to work out what the problem is and how to actually get their astronauts home again. Now, if you put yourself in the position of the astronauts, you must wonder what's going through your mind. Oh my goodness me, the Earth is so small, tiny and insignificant and we're a jolly long way away. I really hope those guys down on Earth are going to come up with a solution for us. Or I'm not seeing my family ever again. Imagine the trust they would have had in the hundreds of thousands of people who work on a solution, given what they've got on board that spacecraft, to not only keep them alive, but also manually re-enter the spacecraft so they don't bounce off the atmosphere or burn up in flames on the way in. Now, the astronauts all survived. Right? But the amount of trust that would have been required by these astronauts, that when the people on the ground say, we want you to take all these different bits and put them all together like this and get the gaffer tape and wrap it around, and you can see the astronauts sitting there going, this is insane, what the heck are we doing? Now, the problem the astronauts had was pretty significant. But I want to suggest that the problem we've got when it comes to hypocrisy and creating our own standards is actually a bigger problem. Because it actually separates us from God. It separates us from the one who made this with a word. So turn with me down to verse 10. Jesus called the people to him and said, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came up and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Now, the Bible elsewhere describes the problem we have between us and God as sin. It's that break in relationship and subsequent rebellion between us and God, which then flows into all of the relationships that we have with other people. Sometimes sin manifests itself both actively and passively. We sometimes actively reject God, and other times we just sort of turn away in the hope that he won't notice that we're rejecting him. Now, even if we feel uncomfortable about recognising or admitting this problem, it doesn't make the problem go away. See, for the Pharisees, they thought that what was most important in this break-in-relationship problem was getting the external appearances correct, keeping the law, being seen to be righteous, 
and undertaking certain actions that would justify themselves before God. One of them was cleanliness in ritual practice. And Jesus here in verse 11, though, identifies that it's what comes out of a person that makes them defiled or unclean. He does so by telling, in a sense, three short little parables. I think they're probably parables, partly because, well, at least one of them is in verse 15. Notice what Peter says. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Now, if you were here last week, they're not quite of the same form as the parables that we looked at, the eight parables that we looked at. Although at the same time, notice how Jesus starts in verse 10. Hear and understand. That's the same phrase we looked at last week. See, the topic here of conversation is about cleanliness. And Jesus warns his disciples in these three little short parables. Another one, you will fall and take others with you. See, these are pretty sobering words for many of us who would seek to be guides for other people as to how God would have us live. If you seek to encourage your fellow brother or sister in how they ought to be right before God, if you teach Sunday school, if you lead youth group, if you go on camps or beach missions, if you lead a small group as an ASGL or a senior leader within the EU, then these words of warning, brothers and sisters, please hear them clearly. For what's the outcome if you don't do it rightly? Then just like the tree the Father's not planted, it will be rooted up. It'll die. Just like two people who are both blind and seek to lead each other, the consequence is basically disastrous. They fall into a pit. See, these are very sobering warnings. And it's all related to how we seek to help others, in this case, do what is right before God. What does Jesus say in verses 18 to 20? It is what comes from within that defiles someone. It is their thoughts, their actions, their attitude, their speech. And these are the things, friends, that God ultimately holds us to account for. These things in their natural state are what creates this separation between us and God. Jesus here recognises the great need that these things flow from a heart that is not rightly orientated towards God. That's what sin is. And as we read later in the narrative, it is only through Jesus dying and rising again that we can be given rebirth, that we can have our heart of stone taken out, as Ezekiel would prophesy, and the heart of flesh put in, that we might, with the help of God's Holy Spirit, seek to put to death these things, that we might live rightly before God. See, just like the Pharisees sometimes, and while in some quarters that sounds very progressive, you do you, you work it out. When you stop and think about it, it's firstly a very arrogant thing to say in light of the God of the universe. And secondly, read through the list again in verse 19. When you look inward, this is what you see, according to Jesus. When you look inward, this is what will become manifest in your life without God's help. I don't know about you, but that is not an attractive list. And what does the world say? The world says, you find yourself by looking inward. And if you're honest with yourself, which at some point we all need to be, it's called maturity and growing up, this is what we see. These are the desires of our hearts. And Jesus says, this is not good. This is not right. This is sin. And this will be punished by God. Because God will hold every individual to account. 
And if you try and make a law that seeks to justify yourself against these things or to justify patterns of behaviour in these things, then you will fall way short of God's standard of perfection. You will be found wanting and under the judgment of God. Theologian Michael Ovey sort of, in a sense, puts it this way. He says, we don't want God to be God. We just prefer anyone other than the God of the universe to be God. And he puts it that second way, we don't want God to be God. See, we do want a God, actually, when we think about it. Because when we look inward, we realise we actually can't control everything. We do actually long for transcendence. I think that's because we're made in the image of God. But sometimes we desire all the things that God offers, but we want them on our terms, not on his. So sin pushes us to create alternative standards, which is actually an expression of rebellion, not righteousness. And because they're standards that we establish, we think we can live up to them, to perhaps know us as Christians, but might not know us well. Do you see how we need to be very careful not to be too quick to judge the Pharisees that Jesus calls out as hypocrites? Because I think for sometimes, for us as Christians, the world thinks we as the Christians are Pharisees. Why is that? Well, I think in what ways are we heard, or in what are we asking the world to trust in? So I think sometimes when we talk to other people about what it means to be a Christian follower of Jesus, we're often heard to be calling the world to become law keepers. Stop doing these things and do these things. That's just law-keeping, pure and simple. It's seeking to justify an exchange of this group of actions and patterns of behaviour and laws for this one. We're often heard to be calling the world to a particular standard. The world hears us calling them to our standard, as if sometimes that's better than what the world offers. So how might we do this differently? I think here we need to be really very careful as to how we speak with people, particularly those who are unbelievers, those who aren't followers of Jesus, those who have really low levels of biblical literacy. See, sometimes when Christians say God wants you to be perfect, which is true, he does, he wants all people to be perfect. Or we say God wants you to stop rebelling or sinning against him, when we as Christians say that, I think sometimes the non-Christian hears, you, Christian, are judging my pattern of behaviour because I don't measure up to your standard. Because they don't make the connection that what we're asking is, you don't measure up to God's standard. See, rightly as Christians, we shouldn't be calling people to a standard per se. We should be pointing them to Jesus and his perfection. Because that is the standard that God sets. That no one is able to meet. Not even us. Which is why we need the forgiveness that's offered in the death and resurrection of Jesus. See, a relationship with Jesus does have expectations and standards, like any relationship. But the key aspect here is that Jesus doesn't expect you to meet the standard before he will have a relationship with you. For when you come to him for help, he establishes you because of the death and resurrection that he's undertaken. And in this case, Jesus is no hypocrite. He does exactly what he says. What he says he'll do, he follows through. In this, next, in this next, next particular section, we're given a demonstration of why Jesus' actions show that he's able to do this. 
was something about our speech. That was for the last section. Okay? Don't be like that person. 21 to 28. This is what Jesus does next. Verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This particular section from verse 21 right down to the end of the chapter, we see that Jesus, God's appointed Messiah, the one who comes to speak truth, the one who comes who is worth following and the one who is worth trusting, comes to restore, to heal and to supply the needs of the people at this particular point in the narrative. See, one of the things that we see here with the faith of the Canaanite woman is that it takes place firstly up in the far north, the cities of Tyre and Sidon, Tyre being out on the coast. And these were the cities that just recently, remember, in these last couple of chapters of Matthew, Jesus has already pronounced a judgment against, particularly because they would not repent when he did miracles there. But this woman who comes is not, well, here she's a Canaanite, she's a half-caste. She's not a true Jew. But even she recognises Jesus as the son of David, a descendant of great King David, and she comes for mercy. Now, Jesus' response initially is consistent with his message. Verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But here that Jesus shows the woman compassion. She persists in her requests and begs Jesus for mercy. Jesus here says, why should I take from the Israelites what is rightfully theirs and give it to you, a Canaanite, a half-caste? To which the woman astutely replies that while she is not entitled to be properly fed, because she is not a child of Israel, she at least deserves the leftovers. We have a couple of dogs, we have a number of pets in our family, we have a larger than average family in terms of the number of children, but we probably have a larger than average number of pets in our family as well. Right? We have two dogs, whenever we sit down for a meal at the table, we sit around and we prepare the food and we sit and eat the meal, the dogs dutifully come and lie underneath the table. Right? It's not necessarily because they're being obedient. They know that occasionally if food falls off the table, they will be quicker at getting to it than we will. Right? See, the illustration is the same here. We don't sit the dogs up at the table. They don't eat with us at the table. They're not eating the same food we're eating. No, we're not the sort of family to put them in clothes and you know do all that sort of stuff, right? But if something falls off the table, then it's theirs. But it's only but a crumb or a morsel. See, what's Jesus doing here? Jesus is tangibly demonstrating the wonderful message of inclusion for those who will trust his word, for those who believe that he's the Messiah, for those who believe that he has the power to restore, to heal. For Jesus offers grace lavishly, abundantly. And in this case, with a word, the woman's daughter is healed miraculously. This then gives us an understanding of what's on offer for everybody who hears the words of Jesus 
and trusts that they are true. Jesus offers healing. He offers forgiveness. And he offers provision. See in that next parable there, when he talks, on that next story where he talks about the feeding of the multitude that was read for us earlier. Here, Jesus miraculously feeds over 4,000 people with but a handful of bread and fish. Now, there's a lot of Old Testament allusions that are going on here. One that you might like to read if you've got a spare half an hour in your mid-semester break next week. If you've not been at the missions training day on Monday for our missions at the end of the year. Or if you've not come and join me for working in God's world next Tuesday. Still, space is open. You can come and join the 20 or so others for the day. Just take half an hour and read 2 Kings chapter 4. Just trust me, read 2 Kings. I mean, it's the scripture, so it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. 2 Kings chapter 4 is four miracles that the prophet Elisha undertakes. If you've never read Elisha, I tell you what, you will not be able to go beyond reading not just 2 Kings 4. You'll read the whole story of Elisha because he does some really crazy stuff, right? All by the power of the Spirit. One of the things Elisha does is he feeds this group of people with a very small number of bread rolls. And Jesus is doing exactly the same thing, demonstrating his prophetic ministry. But notice also it's this great crowd of people in a desolate place, just like the provision that God makes for the nation of Israel in the middle of the wilderness, by feeding them miraculously with manna and quail. It's a group of people that had been three days out in the wilderness, The symbolism is not to be lost on us. It's on the third day that God provides for them, which is consistent with the Old Testament expectation that what takes place on the third day throughout the Old Testament? God appears. It's the day in which the Lord will visit his people. Which is why it's no surprise that Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. If ever you wondered why Jesus comes back to life on the third day, not the next day or the second day or the fourth day or the seventh day, maybe that's the most perfect day, because the third day is the day on which the Lord visits his people and provides for them. And that's exactly what's going on here in this miracle. So is Jesus worth trusting? Well, friends, Jesus is worth trusting, but only if you listen to what he says. Only if you hear his words, rightly understand them, and seek to put it into practice. The reason why Jesus is worth trusting is because more often than not, when we look at ourselves and consider our life, we're often afraid that we won't measure up to others' expectations. That's true in our experience, isn't it? There'll be times when we won't measure up to the expectations that our parents have placed on us, even though they're the ones who we often trust the most. We're afraid that we won't measure up to the demands of university, to peer pressure within our friendship groups, and perhaps sometimes the expectation of what the EU asks of me. And at that point, friends, please don't turn inward. Please don't seek to establish your own standard of righteousness to justify yourself, thinking you also will be able to justify yourself before God. For Jesus speaks a far better and more trustworthy word and says, Jesus says, I am the one who will establish you rightly before God. I am the one who declares you in my death and resurrection, Jesus says, right, perfect, pure before God. And he pours out his spirit that enables us to seek to live rightly between now and when he returns as Lord for all to be seen to bring justice to the earth. Thanks for listening to today's talk. 
The Evangelical Union, or EU, is a student club on campus at Sydney University that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. To join us or to find out more, please visit sydneyuneeu.org.